All right. Well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you today. We're glad you're here with us. Uh, we are continuing our series this morning, Living Hope. Uh, for the past couple weeks, we've been uh, setting our hearts on this idea of hope. I know for the past couple weeks, all of you have been thinking about this hope we have against expectation and the transformative power and, and work and might of God. And so now we have hope in the Los Angeles Lakers. <laughs> Let's go. Just kidding. I don't know if that's not too blasphemous. We actually have living hope in Jesus. And we've been going through this series on 1 Peter and looking at this idea that Peter is talking to believers who are living uh, in a really hostile pagan context. Uh, they're struggling to live out their faith because they're experiencing this shame and rejection. They're wondering about this cost. Is it worth it? Should I keep following Jesus? Should I compromise? Should I give up my faith? And so Peter reminds them of the living hope that they have in this new birth in Jesus, that they've been given this, this radically new life, and so that if they reinterpret their experience through the lens of this life, that, that they find hope in that, in this new birth. And this morning, we want to explore the concept of identity, how this new birth, this new life speaks into who we are and how we see ourselves. And this is a, a really important question. This is our self-identity. How we think about ourselves affects how we think, how we feel, how we act. I remember about 10 years ago, this was when I was in my basketball playing prime, uh, a bunch of us were hanging out a Tuesday night at the, the gym down the street and we're kind of shooting around. And an interesting topic of conversation comes up that is, is pretty typical on a basketball court. Somebody brought up the question of who each of us resemble uh, as a basketball player and how we compared to different NBA players. Right? So given, given our different skill sets or different strengths and weaknesses, which NBA players are we most like? Now, we are aware that we are nothing like NBA players, but just like what similarities are there in how we play? Now, if you've ever played this game, you know that normally you, you throw out like the best, most famous players, right? So at this time, we're talking about like Kobe, Dwayne Wade, Derrick Rose when he was good, uh, just all these different guys. And at some point, this one guy, Corey, he's like, oh, I got a good one, you guys. I got one. I got one for Kataki. Leandro Barbosa. Now, okay, I'm going to explain this, but this was a rough moment for me. I know a lot of you have no idea who I'm talking about. Who is that? Maybe if you're an old Arizona person or uh, if you are you know, a big Laker fan, you probably remember this guy. But Leandro Barbosa is not the type of player who gets thrown around in this type of conversation. Here's Leandro. Maybe you'll recognize him. Uh, now, look, this, he's fine. Solid player. I think he won sixth man of the year once. Uh, you know, but he's not the kind of guy who you dream about being when you're front yard shooting around as a kid, like, oh, Leandro. <laughs> no, nobody does that, right? Career averages 10.6 points per game, 2.1 assists. And what I remember about him is he had one of the ugliest jump shots in the league. So anyway, I don't think Corey was trying to get in my head. I don't think he was trying to gain a psychological advantage over me. But if he was trying to do that, it was genius. Because for the rest of the night, I was just shook by this comparison. Right? The whole night, I had these questions in my head like, am I Leandro Barbosa? 
Like, is that how people think of me? Am I basically like a sixth man? We only play five on five, so if I'm a sixth man, that's not very good. Is my jump shot that ugly? I know it's not the best. Anyway, it just, it really messed me up, and I played horrible that night. Well, a few weeks later, I was, I was sharing this with, with my friend Kevin, who also plays. And he said, don't listen to Corey. You're like the LeBron of Tuesday nights. No, 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 don't even let that sink in. I know he was just being nice. I know there's no resemblance between my game and LeBron's, but it did honestly make me feel better. It kind of straightened out my basketball self-identity because whenever I'd be out there and I'd miss a shot and I'd think to myself, oh, I'm Leandro. Like, no, no, Kevin says I'm the LeBron James of Tuesday night. I'm good. See, how we think about ourselves matters a lot. What we imagine when we think about ourselves as athletes, as workers, in our relationships, kind of what images come to mind when we think about ourselves, it has a big impact on us. It can give us hope or it can bring us to despair. And so one of the most important parts of Peter's letter is making sure that believers have a clear understanding of their identity as God's people. How are they supposed to see themselves in light of this new birth. And obviously, I, I think you know if you've ever read through the New Testament, there's so many different amazing ways to think about our identity in Christ. And so the picture we're going to look at this morning isn't trying to encapsulate all of that, but Peter wants to talk about identity in a way that speaks to this situation that his readers are facing, this reality of hardship and struggle and this need for hope. And so he, he paints this picture, he shows them this image of identity that is meant to inspire hope. So let's go ahead and dive into our text this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter writes, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who don't believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Now, as we always say, this is kind of a confusing passage, but especially because Peter really is kind of all over the place with different uh, Old Testament references and, and these different metaphors. But at the heart of this passage is this one central picture, this metaphor for who we are. In verse 5, we get kind of the simplest idea, the simplest version of this picture. He says, you are being built into a spiritual house. Now, as far as powerful visuals go, at first glance, this one seems a little bit underwhelming. 
Like, hey, you know, I know you guys are struggling with your faith and people are mocking you and rejecting you, but don't worry because God thinks that you are a house. That doesn't initially inspire a lot of hope. But there's obviously more to this picture than that. What Peter says is that you are a spiritual house. Okay, so he's saying that you're not just any old house. This is almost certainly a reference to a temple. And it's not just any old temple. It's a reference to the Old Testament temple, the temple in Jerusalem. This was the dwelling place of God for, for Israel. This was the place where God made his presence known to people. It was the place where they could come for worship, to experience God, to, to bring their sacrifices before him. And so at the most basic level, what we're reminded here is that God is building us up to be this temple, to be the dwelling place of God. We're reminded that he's present with us, that we can worship him and experience him at all times, in all places, in all seasons. But what Peter really wants to do in this passage is to build on this image, to add even more depth and dimension and to show us how this picture as us as a spiritual house, as a temple, again, brings us hope and life. And so we're going to look at three different aspects of this temple picture. And the imagery is kind of cool, because I think we can really stick with this building metaphor throughout and look at three different elements of this building. So let's start here with the house's foundation. Peter says here that this house is, God is building this, he's building us up upon Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone of our spiritual house. Now, unless you're super familiar with with ancient building techniques, it's easy to miss the significance of a cornerstone. I was writing this message all week, and it wasn't until yesterday that I realized I didn't have it quite right. I was kind of going off of my own memory, and I didn't fully have the whole depth of it. But basically, builders, when they would construct a house, they needed this one central foundational piece. And not only was this the piece that they would build around, right, that all the other pieces would go on, so it needed to have strength, and stability, but it was also the piece that kind of centered the building geographically, kind of the direction of it, to make sure that the building was kind of pointed in the right place. So it sets the, both the integrity and the structure, but also the direction. And so it was essential to find a stone that had all the right things, right? That had all the right features, the right size, the right shape, the right strength. And so builders would look and they would make sure before they started building, that they had the correct cornerstone. This reminds me a little bit of the uh, NFL draft. Uh, I don't know why I am unreasonably interested in the draft. I consume all of this draft coverage. But this is basically uh, when the NFL teams take turns picking college players who are going to play on their teams. And the thing that I really enjoy about this process is, is the, the obsession, this search, this, this really fine, you know, it, to searching for the right kind of player, especially for teams at the top of the draft who are looking for a quarterback. The amount of energy and resources that they put in to finding the right guy is crazy. The quarterback is probably the most important position on a team, and so they're all trying to figure out, can he be that guy? Can he be the guy we can build our team around, our culture around, our offense around? Is this the cornerstone of our franchise. 
And so these guys are scrutinized beyond belief, right? Is he accurate enough? Is he athletic enough? Is he smart enough? This year we had a guy, the question was, is he tall enough? Can he be that guy? And one of the central ideas of the New Testament is that Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. Paul talks about this in Ephesians, and Peter builds on this idea here. That in a way, God is searching for this cornerstone piece to build upon, uh, to build his story upon, and he finds it in Jesus. But what's really interesting in this passage is the way Peter contrasts this chosenness, that God has chosen Jesus, he contrasts it with the response of everyone else, of all the other builders. Even though God chose Jesus as the cornerstone, he says basically everyone else says, I can't build on him. I can't lay him as my foundation. Verse 7, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Here Peter paints a picture of multiple building projects, and each one has their own builder. And they're looking at Jesus and saying, again, can he be the guy? So the most obvious reference here is the Jewish people who are looking for a Messiah. They're looking for this person who they can build their hopes on and build the restoration of their nation on. And they look at Jesus and they think, no way. No way can he be our cornerstone. He didn't kind of follow Torah in the way we expected him to. He didn't revive our national hopes. He didn't prevent himself from from dying on a cross. No chance it's Jesus. Toss him out. Another implication is, is the various building projects of the world, right? The, the pagans of Peter's time, those trying to build according to their own standards of honor and value, whether it's wealth or status or, or, or whatever worldly value they want to build for themselves, they look at Jesus and they see the same thing. No chance he's the guy. Poor, humble carpenter, carpenter's son, no power, no riches, no glory. He died in the most embarrassing humiliating way possible, why would I build on him? Toss him out. In the NFL draft, there's, there's seven rounds and 259 picks. And the, the last pick, number 259, he's uh, known as Mr. Irrelevant. Like, that's literally what they call him. This guy gets drafted, happiest moment of his life, and everyone's like, hey, you're Mr. Irrelevant. But the idea is he's been picked so far behind all the other players, he's the 259th most valuable player, that the implication is there's no way this guy is going to make a difference in the league. Peter is saying in the eyes of the world, Jesus is Mr. Irrelevant. He is the stone that all the builders have rejected. And so right from the outset, as Peter builds up this idea of the spiritual house and our identity, he wants us to recognize that the stone that we're building upon, Jesus, that he was rejected too. In the eyes of the Jews, in the eyes of the world, Jesus is shameful, just like us. Jesus is worthy of ridicule, just like us. The last pick that no one wanted, just like us. But when God sees Jesus, it says that God sees a precious cornerstone. He says, this is the guy. I've chosen him to build upon. He is worthy. He has significance. He has honor in my eyes. Peter is reminding us that there's a different value system for God, a different way of understanding what makes someone significant. 
And so he's reminding believers, hey, hey, continue to reinterpret your experience according to God's standard. As you you build your life on Jesus, as, as you lay him as your foundation, you might be rejected. You might be mocked. You might be seen as irrelevant. You might lose some things in your life. You might lose status. You might lose your job. But what he says is that you shouldn't be surprised by that. He says that later in 1 Peter, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. He says that's what you should expect because you're building on Jesus. That's what he experienced. And so you take that on as as you build yourself on him. But along with that, if you also believe this idea that God has chosen Jesus, that he is the cornerstone, that he is worthy of honor and glory and praise because of what he came to do, as you build upon him, you take that upon yourself too. You are built upon his foundation and you receive that kind of significance. And so again, Peter is reminding believers of something They already know and they're already doing it. Pastor Eric talked about this last week. He's not scolding them. He's not saying, hey, get it together. Build on Jesus. He's saying, hey, hey, keep building. Keep building on Jesus. Your experience of suffering, it shouldn't lead you to despair. It actually should encourage you because it means that you are experiencing what Jesus experienced and that you are walking with him. Now that brings us to the second aspect of this building project, the spiritual house. Peter moves from the house's foundation to its structure. God is building us into community. One of the most significant, kind of small details that you might miss in this metaphor comes in in, in verse 5. And Peter says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So notice what Peter says here, or notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that each of us on our own is this spiritual house. He's not saying, Brandon, you are a spiritual house, or or, Daryl, you're a spiritual house. He's saying, no, each one of you is an individual stone. You're pieces of the house. It's only as God brings us together as he builds us each as individuals upon Christ that we in community become this house, this temple. The picture here is obviously one of interdependence. That in order to fully experience this identity, in order to see ourselves the correct way in light of our new birth, in light of to see ourselves in a way that brings us new hope, We have to see ourselves in the context of other people. We can't experience this on our own. I read a story this week about um, the ancient Greek Spartan culture. I don't know if this is actually true or apocryphal, but it sounds cool, so let's pretend it actually happened. But according to the story told by uh, William Barclay, a Spartan king was kind of boasting about his walls to a visiting monarch. And he's telling them all about how strong they are, how impenetrable they are. Uh, You know, these walls are awesome. Now, the monarch is a little bit confused. He looks around, and he sees a city, but he sees no walls. He doesn't see any physical structure guarding the city. He doesn't see anything that looks strong or impenetrable. So he says, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? The king uh, looks right at him, and he says, and then he points to his army. And he says, these are the walls of Sparta, 
Every man is a brick. Now, that's a cool idea. This is what Peter is communicating about us, right? Each person a brick, each person a stone in this amazing temple, this this spiritual house built upon Christ. It's in the context of church that we experience the fullest potential of our identity. And when you think about it, right, you think about all these beautiful metaphors in Scripture in the New Testament about what the church is, right? Like we are uh, the body, the family of God, the bride of Christ, and you realize that that's never speaking to individual believers. It's never saying you on your own, in your own life, in your own faith, in your own little bubble. It's always you, the church, you when you gather, you when you are connected to each other physically, spiritually, emotionally. That's when you take on this beautiful identity. And so again, similarly, he's saying, don't give up on building on Jesus and don't give up on community. See, in the face of struggle and rejection and mockery, what you're going to be tempted to do is to try to find this worth, this significance, by proving yourself to all these other people, by going out there and saying, hey, give me status, give me value, give me what I need, give me a purpose. And he says, no, you'll find it when you lean in more to what you're already experiencing. It's here that God builds you up. It's here that God reveals your value, and gives you a hope as you lean in more to other people and how the people in your church community view you. So keep building together as a community. Well, that brings us to the, the third element uh, of the building and kind of the point that, G, that Peter has been kind of working towards, that as we build up upon Christ, as we build together as a body, we become this spiritual temple, But the climax of the image is this idea of story. That we have a a new story, that that at the heart of this building is a greater purpose. Uh, One of our family's favorite TV shows right now, it's actually the only TV show we really watch together, is Lego Masters. Does anyone watch that show? This show is awesome. You guys should watch it. But basically, it's really simple. You have teams of two, and they build Legos. They get a different building challenge each week. They get like 8 to 12 hours, and they have to make something really awesome. And each week has a different theme. So like pirate ships, or Marvel, or camping, or bull riding. And each one of these different themes dictates what they're going to build. Now obviously, in order to be good at this, in order to win, there's a whole bunch of different things that go into it. Creativity, engineering, teamwork, and and all those things matter a lot. But what I've noticed is that kind of the difference between the winners and the losers every week it comes down to this, this one simple factor. It's, it's the story behind the build. It's the team that has the clearest vision for what the purpose of this build is. And, and that purpose kind of drives the build forward and drives all the different choices they make, the colors they use, the size of it, what kind of different movements it has. And the judges often say this to them, it's, where's your story? Or that was a, a great story. At the heart of a great Lego build is a good story. It gives the build purpose and drives things forward. Well, at the heart of this spiritual building is a larger story, this purpose that drives it forward and determines the choices uh, that it makes and gives it life. See, notice that in in verse 5, Peter doesn't just say that we're a spiritual house. He says we are a spiritual house and 
a priesthood. He, he joins these two things together, the building itself, but then these people who bring out and manifest the purpose of the building. See, the priesthood, I mean, we can't get into how awesome this priesthood is, but basically the priesthood mediates the presence of God and, and, and the people. It's like the priesthood stands between them, and so the priesthood reveals to the people who God is, what he's like. They, they communicate scripture. They, they tell God's truth. They speak God's word. But the priesthood also mediates the people to, to God. They bring forward the people's prayers and their sacrifices. It's through the priesthood that God meets his people and reveals his purpose to bless and love and be present. And in the final two verses of this passage, Peter really brings out this idea of purpose in this beautiful, amazing two verses. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Every single word from those two verses comes from an Old Testament quotation, a reference uh, that comes from one of the treasured words uh, about the people of Israel, these promises that God made to his people of, here's what I'm going to do through you. And Peter is, is really hammering uh, the point home. He's saying, in case you didn't understand, in case this wasn't totally clear, let me just go ahead and bestow on you, the church, some of the greatest promises in the history of God and his people. Some of the most beautiful statements of identity and purpose. He's saying, that's, that's you guys now. You guys are, are jumping in and you guys are becoming a part of, not just a part of, but the main character in the most amazing story that's ever been told. See, once again, we see Peter redefining the identity of the church. Not a rejected, humiliated people. Not irrelevant nobodies. Not pick 259 out of 259. But the priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession. He's saying, you stand between God and the nations. And you, through you, people will come to know God. Through you, people's prayers will, will move up to God's presence. Through you, the nations will know God's goodness and grace. Verses 9 and 10 are, are two of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. You've probably heard me reference them before, and you will hear me reference them again, because I think you can't read these two verses and think to yourself, well, I don't matter. You can't read these two verses as a church and say, well, I don't have anything to offer. You can't read these verses and think the church is irrelevant. These promises say in no uncertain terms the great value and significance of this united church. And so when we kind of bring this all together, this whole picture of the spiritual house, foundation, structure, story, we get a sense of Peter's real endgame here. What he's really trying to do is to elevate the honor and value and identity of the church to the highest possible place. To see that to be built into a spiritual house upon Jesus together as a body, that there's nothing 
better. There's no greater privilege. As much as culture might say otherwise, as much as the values of the world would say, well, that's a waste of time. You have better things to be building, more important things to be pursuing, more important values to be building upon. Peter says, nothing has higher worth than what you're already doing, what you are already committed to. And so Peter says, listen, don't sell your role as the church short. Be wary of this temptation that you're going to have to make the church less than what it is. Make the church seem small. Now, I'm not talking about Cerritos Baptist Church. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm talking about being the church, being this spiritual house united with other believers. Don't make it small. And I think this passage is so relevant for us today. You know, if there's any passage in Scripture that kind of like jumps off the pages and speaks right to us, right where we are, then this might be one of the best. Because I think it's so easy for us to make church small, to make it less than it is. There's a lot of reasons for this. I was thinking about all the different stories that we build upon, all the different ways and narratives that we view church through. All of these pictures that, that kind of, and stories that kind of draw us away from the vision of 1 Peter 2. Sometimes we view the church through the narrative of individualism. Right? We live in an individualistic culture, and so we kind of bring this into how we do church. Right? Like it's, it's really church or, or faith or my identity. It's about me and God. We think about faith as primarily as personal. My personal relationship with Jesus. And church kind of exists to help me with that. I value church. Church pours into it. But what I really want to get right is me and God. When we build on this story, I think it's easy to turn church into basically a, like a really awesome club. You know, like I think about like running clubs. I think these exist. It sounds horrible to me. But people get together for these running clubs, and what they do is, right, they run their own races or their own kind of journey all week. Right? So everyone's trying to run faster, everyone's trying to run longer, everyone's trying to look better in their running clothes, and everybody wants to do their thing. And then once a week they get together and say, let's run together. We'll kind of talk and see how things are going. We'll keep each other accountable to running harder and faster and looking better. But for the most part, we get back home and we run our own races. That's kind of how, how church is sometimes for us. We, we think about faith and our, our identity as a Christian primarily as me and God, and church is kind of extra. On top of this, I think it's easy to view the church through the narrative of consumerism. See, when we think about ourselves as, as individuals running our own races, what the church really does is it's, it's kind of a product, something for me to consume just like anything else. It essentially exists for my growth and transformation, and church either does a good job of this or a bad job of this. Like, church isn't me, church is them, and, and I go to church, and church either is good or it's bad, right? Think about how we talk about church. Like, I mean, everyone does this. You've all said this, so I'm not trying to make you feel dumb, but right, like, I'm looking for a church where I want to get fed, right? Like, I want the church to give me what I need. We all say this. Don't worry. Or how was church today? Well, it was pretty good. The, the message was okay. Worship was good. The snacks were good. You know, you know it's like a, like a Yelp review. And in fact, guess what? They have Yelp reviews for churches. They have Google reviews and Yelp pages. Is this thing giving me 
what I want. Finally, I think we buy into the church narrative of prosperity-based moralism. I made that term up. I don't know if it's a thing, but it represents something very real. That what we really want from God is to be blessed. What we really want is success or riches. We want him to give us what we want in life. In short, we have our own stories. Right? Like I have my own story. I'm trying to build here my own building that I've got going on, and I want it to be really good and really awesome. And I want to let God into my story just enough so that he helps me build my thing, that, that whatever I'm building. And so we do just enough. We do what we're supposed to do. We act how we're supposed to act. We follow the rules of church. We follow the rules of faith so that God will reward us. Now, very rarely do we say this out loud. Very rarely do we talk about, hey, I'm just coming to church so that he doesn't jack me, you know, so that he helps me with my building. But there's a little part of us in the back of our minds that, that thinks this way, or there's, there's, there's this idea in the cultural world around us that, right, if I don't go to church, maybe God will punish me. Part of us that maybe worries about that, or, or if, if I go to church, if I do all the good Christian things, then of course, right, he should bless me. He should help me with all my stuff. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying this is all of us all the time. Again, this isn't like a school, like we need to do better. But what Peter reminds us of is that there are these stories around us that want to make church small. And this is the church culture we live in. These are the stories that we're tempted to believe. And I think, you know, if you think about it, if you're honest, what these stories do more than anything else is they rob us of the joy and life, passion and purpose, the beauty of genuine community. I don't think any of these stories make church seem bad. They don't make us hate church. They just make it mundane. They just make it feel boring because it's just another organization, just another obligation, just another responsibility, just another way to be a good person with just something else to add on to our own building. And when we start building on those stories, we lose something really good about our identity. We lose this full potential of what the church is meant to be. Because I, I think what Peter is reminding us here is he's offering the church as one of the primary, maybe the primary solution to life being hard. He's saying the church, when, when, when executed properly, when built properly, the church is meant to be this never-ending, limitless source of renewable hope that we can draw from over and over and over again. It's a well with no bottom. It's a place of purpose and joy and honor and value and belonging. It doesn't change the fact that life is hard. Nowhere in this book will First Peter say, life's definitely getting better in this lifetime. I can, he never says, I promise you that God will give you this or this or this, but what he does say is that the life that you have here as a spiritual house, this is where you can experience God's goodness. This is where you can experience deep meaning, even in your suffering. And so the question he, he wants us to consider, it's, it's so simple, but it's so important is do we really love being God's church? Like, for real, for real. Do we treasure this identity? 
Is, that the, is it at the center of what we're building in our lives, and does our life reflect that? I think so much of the time when we think about faith and in our struggles, you know, we think about all this, you know, behavioral stuff, like sins we're committing, distractions, all this other stuff that we wish we weren't doing, and, and all that stuff is important. But Peter says, before you address that, address this. What do you believe about who you are? What do you believe about what it means to be built upon Christ? What do you believe about what it means to be a body, a, a spiritual house built brick by brick? What do you believe about what it means to be a priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation? God's special possession. He says, let's continue. Let's persevere in believing in the church. Let's find strength in who we are, and let's find hope in who we can be. Uh, let's pray together.